Well, please do take your seats. And uh, if you can pick your Bibles up and turn back to Luke 16, that will be very helpful to you. We're going to be looking at this intriguing little story this morning. Uh, We did, a little while back, run a series going through a lot of the parables that Jesus told. Uh, And unfortunately, I think that with that series, some were done in the evening, some were done in the morning. It'll be patchy for some of you. Uh, This is actually the 10th in the series, for those of you who are keeping count. Uh, And you can access them all, I guess, online, though I haven't checked. (laughs) But if you want to check, you'll find more information online. Let's pray before we look at this together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen to it and learn from it this morning. Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, there's a number of things that are characteristic when you think about it to both the beginning of our lives and the kind of end stage of our lives. I wonder if you've noticed this. I won't cover all of them, but uh, think about it this way. So at the beginning of your life, you learn you you can't walk. You're not mobile, and you're learning to walk. And then you run around everywhere for 70 or so odd years. And then, as is often the case, you start to become less mobile again. You kind of return back to that, finding it difficult to get around. We start life finding it hard to communicate. It's the frustration of a, a small child, isn't it, that can't communicate and they learn to talk, and then you can't stop them. Uh, and then we somehow manage to get the reins on talking, and we communicate through our lives. And then, again, it's one of those things where old age starts to rob many of us of our powers of communication once again. Certainly was the case for my father. Now, those are all outworkings of the fallen creation that we live in. It's the way that our bodies decline. Our bodies grow, they peak, and then they go down into this kind of decline. It's an interesting sort of pattern to life, isn't it? Another aspect of life that seems to come full circle like that, to revert, is also, have you noticed, the, re- the, the resistance to accepting help from people? You ever seen that? One of our children was particularly fierce in this respect when she was little. Oh, I've said she now. But, but she's, she's still got a 50-50 anonymity. <laughs> and she's not here, so don't tell her. Uh, she would, this particular child would would stubbornly struggle on with a task and you'd be watching her in sort of mild frustration thinking you clearly can't do that and she'd just desperately try and try to do things she was clearly not able to do. And then when it was too painful to watch anymore, Sarah would then offer, would you like mummy to help you? Which would elicit this angry, impatient response, no, I help you, would be the response. And then there would be this stubborn struggling onwards, soldiering on until finally, after a long period of time, crestfallen, she would come sidling up to us and say, Mummy, help you? And that sort of thing happens again at the end stage of life, isn't it? Where many of us return to a state where we can't manage to do everything anymore. And reluctance to accept our limitations, reluctance to accept help, seems to return again, doesn't it? And if you don't sort things out, you can end up in a bit of a pickle at the end stage of life where you haven't received help at the right time. Of course, not everyone finds it hard to receive help, but it can be characteristic 
of the present older generation. So be wary of this. According to one advisory body, here's the reason. They said most seniors today are part of the generation called the traditionalists or the silent generation. And the way they grew up is considerably different than the generations following them. This group of elders worked hard, stayed in their jobs for decades, and saved their money. Their values include sacrifice, loyalty, and contributing to the collective good. Asking for help has not been part of their vocabulary, and accepting it is even harder. Perhaps you're familiar with this. Now, it is common to all of us, isn't it, to be proud at times and not to accept help from people. And it takes real wisdom to be able to discern when you're at the end of your own resources and you ought to be accepting or asking for help from others. Now, nowhere is this more true than in preparing for your eternal destiny. And I want us to to look at what Jesus is saying here because that's exactly what he's talking about when he tells the story that we read earlier. Let me set the scene again for you. Jesus has just told the parable earlier on in chapter 16 of the, as the NIV calls it, the parable of the shrewd manager. So you can see that heading in your Bibles at the beginning of chapter 16. It's a really interesting story, the parable of the shrewd manager. And you can listen, as I said to you, you can listen to a sermon unpacking the story and explaining it online. But the gist of it is that here is a man who is told that he's going to lose his management job. He's obviously got quite a high-up job managing all the assets of a very wealthy master, and he's going to lose it because the master's sacking him. He's discovered that this man's been uh, doing some dodgy dealing, and he's about to lose his job. And so this man assesses the situation, and he decides that he's too old to go and look for another job. He can't go and enter the labour market at his time in life. And he says, and I'm too proud to become a beggar. I don't want to sit down and beg for my food. So what he does is very clever. He calls in all of the debtors on his master's books. And then one by one, he writes off huge chunks of what they owe to his master. He cooks the books in their favour. So that all of these people now owe him big time. And as he says, they will now welcome him into their homes when he's jobless. And they will look after him for perpetuity. And the interesting sort of sting in the story is that when he hears about this, the master is actually quite impressed with what his manager has done. Have a look at verses 8 to 9. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. He'd been a cunning so-and-so. For the people of this world, says Jesus, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, as I say, please do listen to that online. It's quite an interesting story. But what's the point? The point is this. The people of this world, says Jesus are extremely shrewd when it comes to acting in their own interests. They know how to act in their own interests. You don't have to teach somebody to look after themselves, especially when planning for their future and their brief retirement that they're going to experience. 
How much more then, if people of this world are good at doing that, should we be shrewd in planning for eternity, for what comes after this life that lasts forever? It's a much bigger issue. How much more shrewd should we be? Jesus says we should use everything that we are stewards of, everything that we manage to lay up treasure in heaven. Not to lay it up down here, to lay up treasure in heaven. Now, that's all well and good. You see the story that's led up to this? But then Luke tells us that not everyone in the audience liked that story, and perhaps you don't either. So have a look at what, um, what we read at the beginning there in verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Now, it's not the first thing that you think of when you consider the Pharisees, is it, if you know your Bibles quite well? They were, and I guess this is how, what our view of them might be, they were very religious, and that's certainly true. So they were always uh, investing themselves in outward forms of religiosity. They were fastidious about keeping all kinds of extra-biblical laws of their own inventing. And they were careful about keeping themselves separate, keeping themselves clean, keeping themselves away from sinful people. They were separatists. But we are also told here they were famously known for being lovers of money. Lovers of money. They were a wealthy little tribe, the Pharisees. They were big believers in the fact that you could tell how much God approved of somebody by the amount of wealth that God had blessed them with. That's the logic, isn't it? And you kind of see that through the Old Testament part of the Bible, don't you? Think of the, the big names of people who were blessed by God in the Old Testament part of the Bible. They're, they're, they're all wealthy. They all do well. So according to the Pharisees, the kind of person God loves is clean living, religiously observant, exclusive and maintaining distance from sinners and unclean people. And very wealthy, number four, very wealthy. That's your ideal citizen, as far as the Pharisee is concerned. And incidentally, in their opinion then, Jesus doesn't tick any of the boxes. He just doesn't quite do it for them. And certainly, his followers don't. And even more certainly, his groupies, the kind of people he eats with and spends time with, don't tick those boxes either. Now take a look. In verses 15 to 18 that we just read... Jesus, as one writer puts it, here sums up all of his teaching about the Pharisees, the law, the gospel, and true righteousness. That's quite a statement to make, isn't it? He sets them straight, and it's done in a kind of shorthand, and then he's going to follow it up with a story. So have a look with me at verses 15 to 18. Here's the problem with Pharisee types, and you and I need to look at this and look at our own hearts in the light of it. Here's the problem with their approach to things. First of all, verse 15, they're playing to the wrong crowd. Verse 15, he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued amongst men is detestable in God's sight. So they somehow think, these Pharisees, that they can persuade everyone around them that they are righteous people. And that if they can do that, then of course it must be true. 
If I can persuade everyone around me I'm righteous, then it must be a true thing. But Jesus says God sees through all of that. It doesn't fool God for a moment. It doesn't really matter, says Jesus, the tiniest bit what other people think. Your next-door neighbour is not going to determine and decide your eternal destiny. He's not got, even got a vote on it. The only opinion that matters is what God, the one, as Jesus says, before whom your heart is laid bare, who sees your heart, who knows your motives, the only one that matters is him and what he thinks about you. And he is not interested in any of the things that the world values so highly. It won't affect God's assessment of you, whether you have a great reputation, whether you're a regular church attender, whether you've got fame or fortune or popularity. Jesus is saying, you don't, don't perform to this audience, perform to the audience of one. He is the one that sees all that you do, and his opinion is the only one that matters. So that's the first thing, they're playing to the wrong crowd. But the second thing, in verses 16 to 18, they're playing by the wrong rules. Have a look. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, says Jesus, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a lot of shorthand there, but let me just try and walk you through it. Take a look at what Jesus is saying. Just look down at your Bibles. The Pharisees believed that the way to be righteous, that is, the way to get your way to heaven, the way to get eternal life, is going to be by keeping the Old Testament law, to keep God's law as it was all spelt out. All of the thou shalts, keep all of those and avoid all of the thou shalt nots. That's the way to do it. That's how they lived their lives. And they lived by that code that we've mentioned before. They took the law of God, all the do's and do nots, God's rule book, and then to make sure they didn't break any of it, they surrounded it with this big hedge full of other little laws. So you couldn't break the big ones because they had little ones that, if you, that stopped you, the little buffer zone. If I don't break these little ones, I'll never even get to the big ones to break them. That's their security sort of way of living their lives. But Jesus says the time for pleasing God using the law has passed. Look at verse 16. That time has passed. The new way into God's kingdom, says Jesus, is not through the law, but through the good news that Jesus is preaching. That's critical. And that's good news. It's very good news. I mean, we were just praying earlier before the service. Good's not a strong enough word, is it? It is wonderful news. Because law-keeping is not good news. Law-keeping is never good news, is it? All the law ever does is it reveals your faults. The law never pats you on the head and says, good job. All the law ever interacts with you about it says, ah, you've messed up there, haven't you? That's what the law does. It doesn't fix us, the law. It just reveals us. Do you see? The law is a dead end. 
And what's more, says Jesus, the law is also merciless in its judgment. It doesn't have any slack in it. Easier, says Jesus, have a look, easier to make the heavens and the earth disappear than to change the law, find any wiggle room in it. You and I can never keep the law perfectly enough. And Jesus illustrates it with that last sentence about, by, by using what the Pharisees are saying about divorce. We'll have seen this earlier on in the gospel. The Pharisees believed that divorce was okay for any and every reason. Your wife burns the toast. You can, uh, you can file for a divorce. Just so long as you tick this box, get your certificate of divorce, as Moses told you to. Get the certificate of divorce, send her away, and everything is sorted. The law-keeping box will be ticked. But God's word says and makes very, very clear God hates divorce. God hates divorce. And that he considers marriage to be a binding covenant, not something you break or put aside lightly. Hence, their remarriage after their any reason divorce, says Jesus, constitutes adultery. It's just basically you've legalized adultery. Bang! The law has condemned them. As soon as they look at it closely, adulterer, says the law. You think you've ticked your little boxes? No, no, no. You're an adulterer. The Pharisees think that they're earning merit with God by observing the law. But do you see, this is not the case. They're just digging themselves deeper and deeper into a pit. By putting their confidence in the law, they've put themselves in dreadful peril. That's all by way of background. Do you see what's led up to this story? So what follows after this story is perhaps one of the most uncomfortable, perhaps the most uncomfortable of all the parables that Jesus ever told. It's like he's reached the end of his tether with the Pharisees and he's giving them some real home truths about what really matters. Because this story concerns the eternal destiny of all mankind. And that should make you want to listen up if nothing else does. What does Jesus say about this? What happens after this life is over? Where do we go? What will it be like? More importantly, what in this life is going to affect our fate then after this life is over? Heaven and hell. They are the uncomfortable realities that Jesus is about to talk about. Are you ready? Let's take a look at it together. Before we do, I want to give a little footnote because I think people get a little confused about what the Bible says about some of the things about this topic. If you don't get your thinking straight about how the New Testament is talking about hell in particular, then I think you can go off in all kinds of weird tangents, and people do. So in preface to this story, let me add this little footnote. In Jewish thought, and according to the Old Testament, after death, the soul of the departed person went to a place called Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for it, Sheol. That's the place to describe the realm of the dead. There should be some notes coming up to help you to understand this excursive one. Boom, there we go. Old Testament, we have the word shell. That's where all dead go to. You could almost call it the grave, but it's a spiritual place. 
The Jewish scribes then, who translated the Old Testament into Greek, when they came across the word Sheol, they substituted it for the Greek word Hades, or as we would call it, Hades. So Hades. And that was used to describe exactly the same thing. It's the word actually used in verse 23 in this story, translated by the NIV as hell. There's going to be a problem, a slight problem with that. So Jesus' audience would have understood that in Hades, in the realm of the dead, where we all go when this life is over, there were two compartments, two compartments to Hades. A place for the righteous and a place for the wicked. And in the story that we read now, they are described as Abraham's side or as the old versions used to call it, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's side and the other compartment, torment in fire, a place of suffering. It's not given a name here particularly, is it? And they are separated in this story, if you read through the story, by a chasm that nobody can cross. So you've got these two compartments separated, kept separate. separate. Hence, Jesus doesn't Jesus tell quite a lot of sorting parables, doesn't he? Where people are sorted on one side and the other all the time. Because this, the whole idea of sorting is happening here. Two compartments. So Hades, with its two compartments, is a place of waiting. But it is not the final destination. There is nobody yet in what we would call hell. Not yet. Okay, bear with me here. The New Testament teaches that there is a day of judgment coming on which every person who's ever lived will be ultimately have, have their sentence and their destination executed for them. That's happening on a judgment day. Some to heaven, or more accurately, to the new creation. That will happen at the ju final judgment. And others to what I think we mean when we use the word hell. Jesus used another word for this place, for the word hell. So the New Testament has two words used that both get translated as hell. The other word, the word that Jesus often used when he was talking about this final destination, is Gehenna. Gehenna. It was a word that's thought to have been taken from the rubbish dumps outside of the city of Jerusalem. Picture those dumps. Uh, you know, the Jewish people were fastidiously clean. Uh, anything contaminated, anything unclean, out, out with it to the dump. Corpses, dead cats, dead dogs, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's all just mounting up in these horrible refuse dumps outside the city. Uh, and, of course, to control the, the smell and the infection and the nastiness going on there, you've got to have fires going. So there were fires burning and people just shoveling the stuff around and trying to keep it burning. It was a place where corpses decayed and fires consumed constantly. You can see why Jesus is using it as a, as a description for a place you do not want to go. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus describes that final destination as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, in the book of Revelation... We are told that at the final judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 to 15, if you want to take notes, 
we're told then, after the final judgment has happened, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name's not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see, I'm, I'm trying to paint this picture for you because we need to think clearly about this. Otherwise, stories like the one we're about to look at can lead us down all kinds of rabbit trails. Do you see? If we're being accurate, this is what we mean by hell, the lake of fire. So the NIV is not being very accurate when it uses the word hell in verse 23. Must get your thinking straight. However, for the purposes of our story, it is absolutely clear here that if you are in torment in Hades, the only thing between you and that eternal punishment is your sentence waiting for you at the final judgment. So we can kind of assume then that this is a parable about heaven and hell, though technically those aren't quite the right words. Do you see where I'm going with this? I hope that's really helpful to you because it will help you in reading through the, the New Testament. Jesus never spoke lightly of hell, and I don't want to either. We never should. It's not something we ever take delight in having to teach about But Jesus did speak about hell a lot, but always to warn, to warn people. According to Jesus, we should be so desperate. In a nutshell, this is what he says about hell. You should be so desperate about avoiding going there that you would rather cut off your hand or gouge out an eye if it meant you had a possibility of escaping it. You don't want to go there. Now, it is understandably not a popular thing to talk about in our day and age, and many churches just avoid it. There's plenty of churches where it's entirely avoided, or it's disbelieved, or it's explained away, or it's watered down. We are not, if you're a visitor, that that kind of church, but neither are we the kind of church that wants to take any kind of perverse pleasure in talking about such things. It's just necessary. And we're looking at it in this story because it's necessary to understand what Jesus is saying. And we need to hear what Jesus has to say to us. So let's take a look at this story. The first heading I want to put on this story is, is, it starts out with how we see things, how the world sees things. Have a look at verse 19 with me. Now, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we have introduced to us our two main characters from the story. And first of all, we're told about the rich man. And he is fabulously rich. I think that's what Jesus is trying to paint here. His his clothes are the clothes of royalty. He's dressed in royal purple. He's getting his clothing from the same supplier as the royal family do. He's wealthy. His home is sumptuous. He lives in luxury, elegance and opulence, feasting every mealtime. Can you picture him? There he is. Probably rather large, I would think. A large man dressed in purple. And not only is he fabulously wealthy, he's got pedigree. 
He's got pedigree in the nation, and he's, a, he's clearly a, some kind of a, a religious man. He's, he's the kind of man that the Pharisees would definitely have approved of. Look at how he keeps on talking to Abraham. Father Abraham, Father Abraham. He's a true Jew, a son of Abraham. He's clean, and he's blessed, and he keeps unclean things at a safe distance. That's the rich man. Speaking of which, there is Lazarus, the unclean thing. Lazarus, we're told, is a beggar who lives at the rich man's gate. He's never been beyond those gates because he is clearly under God's curse, at least as far as the Pharisees would have seen it. This man is covered with sores. He's naked enough that the local dogs have taken an interest in his wounds and they're licking him. Lazarus, we're told, dreams of the day when this rich man might just take the smallest bit of pity on the misery that lies outside his gates and send maybe perhaps just a few crumbs from his table. Well, I don't know if you've visited um, Haddon Hall. I went for the first time a few weeks back and I can highly recommend it. It's a, it's a lovely place. If you're a holiday maker, there's like about 50 films that were filmed at Haddon Hall. It's very interesting. In one of the cellars underneath the building is a room full of boxes, poor boxes. These were boxes that were used to put all the scraps of the kitchens from all of the large houses around the country, all the manor houses. They put all their scraps into this box and then the box would be carried to the gates so that the poor could have the food from the tables of the rich people. But Lazarus was never so lucky. He had nothing that this world valued, and eventually, we're told, his life just ebbs away. Now, we would look at these two men, and I'm guessing Jesus' audience would do the same, and we would make certain kinds of judgments about them just on their surface value. Perhaps negatively, perhaps positively. But our opinions, says Jesus, wouldn't matter one bit. When all was said and done, and the grim reaper had been about his business, we discover the reality. We've seen how we see things. Now let's look at how God sees things. Have a look with me, verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. This is the sting in the tail. Do you see it? I wonder whether Jesus' audience did. It's this role reversal thing that happens. It turns out that the righteous one in the story was Lazarus. And the rich man ends up in hell. Other than... Interestingly, other than ignoring the obvious needs of the poor man at his gate, we're told of no gross or notorious sin committed by this man. He's not Hitler, is he? And yet he is terribly lost. 
In outward appearance, he might have seemed like a fine, religious, upstanding citizen in this life. But it wasn't what he did so much as what he neglected to do that sealed his fate. God's law needs to be kept in the heart. If that's the route you're taking, not just outwardly to impress others. To be righteous under the law means that we must love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we must love our neighbour, the one sitting at our gates, like we love ourselves. And no one can keep a law like that. All the law will do is condemn those who strive to keep it. Well, this is not the fate of Lazarus. Abraham's side describes the position of honour at Abraham's table. That's quite something, isn't it? He's the guest of honour. Why is he the guest of honour? What was the difference with Lazarus? Well, I think the clue is in his name. Notice how the rich man doesn't even have a name. He's He's that inconsequential. Lazarus is of note, maybe not in the world, maybe not during his life, but certainly to God. Lazarus, the name Lazarus means he whom the Lord has helped. And that, I think, is the key. See, the rich man just helped himself in this life, looked after number one. Lazarus had no one to turn to but the Lord. And though he might not look like much in the eyes of the world, it's, it, this is everything in heaven. The Christian message, the good news of the kingdom that Jesus says is now being preached, is that it's good news because it's that true righteousness is not earned by our blood and sweat and tears. It is instead given to us as a free gift when we turn our lives over to Jesus and put our trust in him. It's all the grace of God. Jesus has helped us. That's the gospel. He went to the cross and there he paid our debts in full. He helped us. And the only important question remains is that whether you and I will accept that help, will we let him help us? Or whether we'll just be proud and refuse it? No, 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 no. I managed quite well on my own, thank you very much. Just like the Pharisees. Well, just briefly, what happens next is curious. There's no plea bargaining from the rich man. Do you notice that? It's slightly odd. He knows, actually, that he has no case to present. His eternal fate will be one of unending torment. But he does have a couple of requests here the answers to which give us three further home truths about hell. First of all, there's no points for heritage. No points for heritage. Listen to what he says. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. Do you see, even face to face with the reality of his fate, this man thinks that he can treat Lazarus as his personal servant. He thinks that somehow a man like him ought to have some kind of pull, even in a place like this. After all, he is a full pedigree Jew. He's one of the covenant people. He's a descendant of Abraham. Abraham's his father. But none of those factors make the blindest bit of difference 
They don't make any difference. Not even for a drop of water. Righteousness is not passed on through your genes. As John the Baptist told the crowds at the beginning of Luke's gospel, listen, produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's no second chances here. Abraham continues, even if someone was willing to come over and bring a drop of water to this rich man, he says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, of course, I don't want to stretch the story too far. Jesus is telling the parable to communicate principles rather than to giving us a lesson of the geography of Hades. But the point is clear. When this life ends, that's it. There's no changing your mind. I think the Bible clearly teaches that nobody will actually want to. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? That even in his torment, the rich man never asks to cross over himself. He's not asking for second chances. Can I just pop over, cool off for a bit over your side? Can I just get a glass of water? The author John MacArthur writes this, hell is punitive, not remedial. People in hell do not get better. And scripture is emphatic about it. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Revelation 22. Hell fixes the destiny and character of the reprobate forever. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? No second chances. And finally, evidence is not the issue. Evidence is not the issue. Have a look at verse 27. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I've got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Here is a final powerful dig at the Pharisees. The rich man did not end up in hell because of a lack of information. It's not because no, he'd, ha- he'd had no warnings. Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, were read every Sabbath at the synagogue. Jesus taught that all of those scriptures pointed to him. Everything was fulfilled in him. He declared himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope of rescue, of salvation. And his actions and his words confirmed it every day in front of the crowds. Would a visitation from beyond the grave seal the deal finally? Would that one final sign do it? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, right at the end of his gospel, we read that immediately after Jesus' resurrection, listen, some of the guards, were told, went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. 
When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole the body away whilst we were asleep. No miracle, no matter how incredible that miracle might be, will convince anyone who has heard and understood the message of the scriptures and rejected it anyway. That is the power of the gospel. It always takes a supernatural act of God in his great grace to open eyes that are blinded to the gospel. So how about you? Will you listen to Jesus as he warns about heaven and hell? Will you listen to him? What are you trusting? Are you like the rich man? Are you like those Pharisees? Trusting in your own goodness? Trusting that you can do it on your own? You don't need any help from anyone, thank you very much. Are you trusting your decency, your moral uprightness? Something about you that's going to do it? Or will you be like Lazarus? The world might think what it likes of a Lazarus, but he knows that the Lord is his helper. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die.